Hello and welcome back to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. Coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Tina Quinn. It's good to have your company. Well, this week we turn to the wide world of sport. In this edition, we look at sport as a profession, an industry and source for entertainment for all of us. Sports coverage is bread and butter content for the media, but does the media always cover sport in a way that is fair for athletes? And what are we missing out on from these well-worn narratives and tropes of sports journalism? Joining us this week, we're lucky to have Tracy Holmes. She's the host of The Ticket, an ABC-produced program and podcast, which provides us with a weekly in-depth analysis of the major issues in sports, business, politics and governance. An award-winning journalist with many years of experience, she's anchored, reported and commentated for many of the world's biggest events, that's including 12 Olympic Games, and she was also the first female presenter of a national sports program in Australia, ABC Grandstand. Tracy Holmes, a warm welcome to Fourth Estate. Thanks very much for having me. And the wonderful Jeff Lemon. He's a journalist, writer and host of the podcast Half of the Final Word. A passionate cricket fan, he's also the author of The Comeback Summer and Steve Smith's Men. Much of his great work can often be found on the Guardian website. Jeff Lemon, welcome back to Fourth Estate. Nice to be here. The pandemic has been tough on on many people, but it's fair to say elite athletes have had a tough time as well. Many have had their livelihood threatened or, or taken away. And even being able to train has been at times quite impossible. What are some stories you've been hearing from the sporting community? Tracy, I'll go to you first. Look, I think it's been really difficult because athletes are aware that they they do have a, a pretty privileged situation. You know, they're lucky enough to be able to spend a lot of their time doing what is their passion. Um, for some people, that is really uh, lucratively rewarded. For others, it's not. You know, like some of the Olympic athletes, they, they earn very little money. They get a two-week window once every four years, or in this case, it's been once in five years because of the one-year delay for Tokyo. Um, so they're wary that with any of their complaints, they need to frame that in a way where lots of other industries are much more worse off than them. Uh, but having said that, yes, you know, of course, there, there are issues that go with it. There is the, the one-year delay. Do you, do you put your life on hold for another 12 months so you can get to the Olympic Games? Uh, do you travel when you might be afraid of COVID? A number of tennis players from Australia withdrew from the tennis tour when it resumed. Uh, yeah, so there's all of those sorts of issues. Some people wasn't a problem at all. You know, Novak Djokovic staged a tournament um, <laughs> and he probably wishes he doesn't uh, or didn't. Um, yeah, so so there's a lot, lot to talk about. They're probably not the worst category if you're thinking about impact, um, but definitely it, it has uh, changed the way they do things and the way that their industry manifests. I want to turn to Naomi Osaka. As we all know, unless you've been living under a rock, she pulled out of the French Open citing mental health concerns and and the response in the media has been fairly mixed. Some called her quite brave. Others were quite sceptical or even critical of her position. Uh, Is it fair for the media, do you think, to be critical here? Or is this a case of many have yet to become more sensitive to issues around mental illness when dealing with athletes? How how do you think we're going at at covering mental illness, the mental illness side of this? Tracy, first to you. Uh, I think, you know, journalists are probably in the same basket as many other people. At at times we think about it, at times we don't. Um, We can be a very cynical bunch. Um, Sometimes that cynicism serves us well. Other times it gets us into trouble. Uh, So I guess we're, we're on a bit of a learning curve as well. But 
if somebody says to you that they have suffered, uh, you know, mm. and and they're struggling with particular circumstances, such as having to speak to the media, anybody that has watched her career from the beginning would know that she is really a very private, insular person and doesn't like that kind of um, exposure to people that she doesn't know when mm. having conversations about things. It's not to say she's afraid of what she believes in because we know we saw her turning up at the US Open every day with a new mask on, Black Lives Matter, and somebody else who died at the hands of police brutality. So she's obviously got very firm thoughts. Uh, but I think, you know, when she said, look, I'm not going to do the, the daily press conference because it's a drain and I want to be able to focus on my playing, I actually think that's fair enough. And I don't know how anybody can be critical of that. We, we might not agree with it. We might accept it, whatever. There's, there's all of those other thoughts. But if that's what's going to suit her to be able to do what she is there to do, which is play tennis, not speak to the media. And mm. I totally get that, you know, there's a role for the media and it helps with all sorts of promotion and, and sponsorship and what have you. But she's not going to lose a single sponsor for not doing those daily press conferences. And I think there was a real lack of understanding. And we saw it flipped just a couple of days later when Roger Federer turns up and says, yeah, well, I'm pulling out because I want to focus on Wimbledon. Everyone was like, (laughs) hail Roger, you know, and it was, hang on a second. Why such a difference in reaction here? Jeff? Well, I I think the way that the Naomi Osaka story evolved if you're if you're a journalist who's working on the tour and Mm. dealing with the players face to face you're more likely going to write a pretty reasonable line on things that story becomes much bigger and it gets into the ecosystem of the the comment pieces and the culture wars if you like where there are there's going to be a right assumed by uh inflammatory writers to have a go at her and and there are you know a, a couple of factors that feed into it one is that the thing that we already talked about uh, about being seen as wealthy and successful because mm. she's an athlete who's won some big tournaments and the other thing is she's young and she's a woman and so that makes her those are immediately the things that are used against her where they say look at this this uh, immature little brat or whatever it is that, who is who's making these demands mm. and having these tantrums and the 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 nature of that sort of perception is just so off the mark when you look at um, uh, some of her earlier clips from press conferences where you know a a lot of people have depression I have depression and we recognize the symptoms of it in other people and you can absolutely see it in her at, at times in previous press appearances where she's so uncomfortable she doesn't want to be there she's completely flat and and drained and so people who don't suffer from it would say well how are you supposed to be out there playing tennis and winning matches sometimes if you have depression you can achieve certain things that Mm. you can sort of narrow your focus on something you're going to get done but anything else outside of that is too exhausting and too mentally exhausting and you can't approach it and that was pretty clearly the case with her with what was happening with her and and so there was a a lack of willingness to actually understand that that might be real um, because the way that we run depression and mental health stories in the media we like them to have an ending we like them to be Mm. this is something you have overcome this was a hurdle that you overcame oh you were at your lowest but now you're fine it has to have a happy ending and and if it doesn't then we're extremely uncomfortable with it as, as a media ecosystem because we don't know how to treat that story it's not easily told there's no neat way to wrap it up and so we resent the ambiguity of that 
I think depression and the challenge that it faces, that it poses to us. Depression and anxiety doesn't, you know, it doesn't work like that as we as we all know. Do you think it it displays a deeper uncomfortability with us, Absolutely. within us, about, it, about mental health issues? It, it's it's a lack of understanding of how mm. mental health problems work, and it, I mean it's it's fundamentally difficult to understand if you if you've never had depression, it's hard to understand that it it is even real that it even exists. You can look at people and who are suffering from it and say, well, why don't you why don't you cheer up? Why don't you think happy thoughts? Why don't you go for a walk and get some more exercise? All these kind of blandishments that you get from people who don't actually know what it's like. And it's fair enough in a way because it's hard to imagine how debilitating it is when it's invisible, um, when, when someone who doesn't suffer from it can just think what they would do if they were feeling sad about something um, external that had made them feel that way. And so because it's so nebulous, uh, it's so intangible in terms of how it affects people, we're really uncomfortable with the idea that we don't know how to solve it. We don't know how to address it. And if, as it is for a lot of people, it's chronic, it's a condition that will just continue forever or will come and go, will we'll come back in, in different waves of different intensity, we have no idea how to address that, uh, how to think about that. There's no there's no story to that. There's no narrative arc to that. Whereas if you read the post-playing biography of some player who says, oh, I, I, you know, I became an alcoholic or I got addicted to drugs or I had this mental health collapse and then I recovered, that's really easy to digest. You know, there's a nice story it's much arc. much more inspiring. Ending, it was yeah. Fine. yeah. yeah. Uh, Tracy, you wrote in a piece for ABC Online a uh, number of weeks ago that Naomi Osaka isn't isn't paid the big bucks, and the the, the punters aren't paying you know a hundred dollars a ticket to go see her do a press conference. Do a press conference. <laughs> it, it's a, a bit yeah, more it doesn't about work like that. No, <laughs> what, what what are the punters paying for? Yeah, well, you know, if you if you think back to um, any athlete that you remember, mm. it's unlikely that it's going to be from something they said in a press conference. It's much more likely to be something that they did Mm. on a field or a court or in the surf or whatever the sport is. But I think also the situation with Naomi and while people that don't suffer uh, depression um, might not be able to grasp it or understand it, I think if you try to put yourself in the shoes of someone who is young, female, mixed race, who is the face of the Tokyo Olympics, taking place in a country that that she represents, where a majority of the population don't want the games to happen. And here she is with, with all of that kind of intensity uh, riding on her shoulders. And then, you know, for her to say that she's suffering and wants to focus on playing tennis, the number of journalists that I saw saying things like, well, if she's not well enough to do a press conference, she's not well enough to play. And I think this comes back to what Jeff was saying, mm. like sometimes mm. that that is actually the thing you need. That is the, the moment and that is the space that you need to do what you know you can do well until you work your way through what is going on in your mind. And and I just think it's so terribly sad that we robbed her of that. And I hope that it hasn't impacted her um, more significantly by not just letting her play. And, and I think it was outrageous that 
the the four um, presidents of the Grand Slam tournaments um, who came up with this rule, you know, adapted the rules that they have to basically say that if she didn't turn up on the second day for her post-match press conference, uh, that she faced, you know, the danger of being suspended or, or kicked out of future Grand Slam tournaments because, uh, you know, it was being seen as egregious behaviour um, and, and then not front up to answer Mm, questions about mm. that. It's like, hang on a second, you're saying she needs to front up to answer whatever, even if she's really not in the mental space to be able to do that, but you won't front up and take our questions on why you have implemented this rule uh, that just seems so far out of whack. So it sounds to me like you both feel that one of the problems is that many of us have a simplistic idea of, of what an elite athlete is as well. You know, we see them as pampered and very spoiled and, you know, they're here to provide us with entertainment. Do you think we, the punters, are, that, are a big part of the problem? Uh, not the punters. I think the way it's framed in the media. Or you it's know, the, the media The, the punters that's, yeah. can only consume what they see. They can watch and, and, and they can, you know, consume sport uh, in any way they like. And, and then they rely on the media coverage that various athletes are given. And it's always fascinated me, like even with somebody like Nick Kyrgios, and he's panned in the media constantly. And, uh, you know, people make up their mind about Nick because of what they read or, or the comments that are made in broadcast media about him. And yet he's one of the most popular players on the tour. Players love him. And then you get people like Rod Laver, you know, perhaps the greatest player ever, saying that the player he thinks that is the most talented player that he has ever seen without doubt is Nick Kyrgios. And if only he could get his mind mind and his body in tune together mm. and, and see it through to his potential, you know, he, he would be outstanding. And so it's really interesting when, when you sort of peel back the layers and how narratives begin and take hold. And um, I think it's really important to, to always try and seek out that difference because there's, there's always more than yeah. one side to a story. In saying that, you know, that sort of leads into my next question. I mean, this, the sporting world and the media are geared around performance and the winner takes it all, right? So the highs and lows on the field are, are celebrated, they're examined in, in minute detail, but we also downplay or ignore the thousands of, of hard hours of work and the, the real cost of high performance. So the life after sport with busted knees and brain injuries and uh, even poverty is, is, is very rarely looked at. Do we ignore the downside because it goes against the myth we hold of our sporting heroes or just because it, it spoils our fun? Why, why don't we ever turn to that side of the narrative? I think sometimes we do, uh, but you know what news is like. It's it's this sort of constant roller coaster. Mm. It's like things are picked up. You know, uh, five six days ago, the biggest thing in the world was what was going on in swimming Australia. Like everyone's just moved on now, um, and 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 that's a tragedy because you are actually talking about people's lives. But Mm -hmm. the nature of the media is you can't talk about everything all the time and and continue to, um, you know, analyse it. And I think that's one of the handicaps, but we just have to accept that. It's it's the nature of the beast. But I think given um, the downsizing of sport and the delay in sport through the COVID year, it was interesting to see how many more people um, started reporting on stories that, you know, people like Jeff and I have, have probably mm. been writing about and talking about 
forever uh, because they are interesting. But suddenly people had pause mm. because there weren't the 55 games being played every weekend, uh, you know, and there, there weren't all of these matches that they would be covering from, from morning, noon and night. Uh, and they had a moment to stop and think about some of these other stories, which, which actually um, are the real... It's the real fabric mm. of sport. It's all of those things because it is putting the myth to one side and saying, okay, let's let's look at the human side here. Let's look at everything that that makes up what this story of sport is. And and you know, it is certainly not one dimensional. Um, and that has been one of the positives of COVID. I think that a, a lot of people in the media are looking a lot more intently at these other aspects of sport. Jeff, in your work, you often look at this sort of this sort of side of things. What are your thoughts? Well, I suppose it's to come back to something Tracy was saying a little while ago. It, it, it's not it's not that there's a single line coming down from media organisations, and that's all that people think. I think it's more that there are there are probably a range of different community views, and media organisations maybe pick up one that they're going to reflect and amplify, and, and so then that. Uh, achieves a form of dominance but in terms of how quickly we move on from things uh, there's there's almost no way to escape that churn and so it takes a really powerful personal story to actually break through I think Russell Jackson's done some work like that on the for the ABC online over the last year or so with um, his interviews with AFL players from the 70s or VFL players from the 70s and the traumas and difficulties they endured in in their lives, but but in a way those stories had to be as as intense as they were to have the cut through that they did. And so, people like as 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 the public, as consumers of media, they're not not everyone has the time to have a detailed and nuanced understanding of every topic. It's just impossible. And so that's the kind of job that media organisations should be doing is trying to explain things better, trying to to shed more light on things, whereas often it's the other way around and it's more media organisations um, pumping out the most simplistic take on things because that's, that's easier to understand, therefore it's more appealing, it's more immediately appealing and more people are likely to latch onto it. And so I think that's fundamentally why we have the problem that we do with reporting that lacks any sort of nuance. All right. So we have, you know, in terms of resourcing, there's a bit of a, and I guess column inches, there's a bit of a gap in in how much we can report on all the time. But when we are reporting, I want to touch a little bit on the idea of heroes and villains. So going back to Naomi Osaka, one of the aspects of, of sports coverage that really seemed to play into that story was that of heroes and villains. You see it all the time in the way the media covers sport. It's often the dominant narrative. Roger Federer, you know, he's a good guy. And Novak Djokovic, you know, not so much. Is is Naomi Osaka a victim of this narrative as well, do you think? One where we have heroes and with that we must have villains. We must have someone to cast in, in, in that villainous character. Jeff, first to you. Perhaps not exactly a villain, but in that way that I mentioned earlier, where there's an ingrained cultural contempt for women and especially for young women that whatever they do has to be cast as vapid, as selfish, Mm -hmm. as grasping, Mm -hmm. um, greedy, 
so many different negative connotations that are associated with young women, particularly young women who are successful. Um, in a way, we can't stand that as a society. We have to tear them down unless they walk an absolute tightrope in terms of being absolutely perfect in a very limited uh, perception of how women are supposed to behave. And so I think that being a black woman, being an Asian woman, uh, being a woman of, of mixed race who's uh, supported political causes uh, for uh, to, to protest against racial discrimination or for all of those reasons, if Naomi Osaka ever stepped out of line, uh, she was going to be whacked immediately. And, and that's what happened because they could cast her as, oh, look, she's being self-obsessed and whatever it was, rather than actually looking at the reasons behind the things that she's done. You, you look at the amount of negative press that Serena Williams has got, mm. despite being the greatest champion that women's tennis has known. She's been a, a phenomenon throughout her career that's still going. And yet there's always been a, a desire to undermine her and tear her down and so I think that feeds into something much deeper in terms of uh, cultural discrimination than just the, the heroes and villains narrative. Novak Djokovic getting stick for being a villain that's because he's publicly been an absolute moron um, he's a, an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> Tell us what you really he's, think Jeff. <laughs> I mean look he's the, the guy is a joke as a public mm. figure with a large following he's mm. done actual dangerous things and yet he's still probably um, accorded more leeway than someone like Naomi Osaka because mm. she's in her early 20s and she's female. Yeah, totally agree with the whole thing about Naomi being female, um, being Asian, being black. Uh, you start putting those sorts of boxes in a list and you think she's on a hiding to nothing. Mm. And I think the unfortunate thing is that we tend to, we do tend to put um, athletes into a box. They can only be that. And the minute they stray outside of that, we want to tear them down. Mm. And, and some of the straying outside of that is getting involved in political causes. Mm -hmm. uh, like Jeff says, the minute you start earning money, we, we've got a great obsession with with athletes and money here. There's all mm -hmm. sorts of things that we say, oh, yeah, but look how much money they make, uh, you know, so they shouldn't mm -hmm. behave like that. It's like it's actually got nothing to do mm -hmm. with how much money they make. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we don't allow our athletes to be full people. And I do think that athletes are held to a really strict criteria and, and account and we demand so much of them. And yet the truth is, like in our workplaces, like in any workplace, like in any society, community, household, you're going to have some personalities who are outrageous. You're going to have others um, that are really, you know, they, they're the sort of shy retiring type. You're going to have people who are skilled at one thing and completely hopeless at something else. I mean, these these are the humans. This is the human condition. And we paint our athletes as something else. And, and whether it's back to your question, you know, the, the hero or the villain, mm -hmm. we don't understand these layers and layers and layers in between. And every single athlete is a combination of all of those layers. Um, and that's why I think it's so fascinating when you try and, and delve down into that and you look at the layers and the complications that go into making a human being. The way we look at it in such black and white terms is just not the reality. And, uh, and then it comes back, like Jeff said, you know, we have to then question ourselves. And what are we saying about ourselves mm. when we demand that a particular type of person acts in a particular type of way and the minute they don't behave that way, we are extremely judgmental. And yet maybe what it says is that our judgment in the beginning 
is wrong or misinformed or not detailed enough. Well, Jeff, to you, the the ball tampering scandal hit many Australians mm. hard because I think we all quite like to think of ourselves as the heroes. You know, this is Australia. The fact that most countries were actually tampering with balls isn't really a consolation to us. This is the baggy mm. green, the the team of Bradman and Benno. How do you view the How do you view the scandal when played against this big backdrop of national pride and a media really pushing that narrative of us as as heroes? Well, that's a huge part of any sport in Australia. Is is our national mythology, um, which is somewhat borne out by fact of being being a plucky underdog who you know punching above our weight as in we're a small country and yet we'll have the best cricket team in the world for 20 years mm-hmm. and we'll come much higher on the medal tallies at the olympics than we should and all of the rest of it um, we don't have the the realism to acknowledge that this is because we're a very wealthy country mm-hmm. and because we could afford to plow hundreds of millions of dollars a year into sport in various guises you know the fact that uh all of the big football leagues and, and the cricket association are uh, tax exempt bodies. The the fact that the there's so much funding that's gone into Olympic sports over the last forty odd years, well, fifty years since the nineteen seventies, we've been able to put the resources in. Therefore, we've been able to reap the benefits internationally. But as a country, we generally tend to have this sort of social idea that there's some special Australian quality that means that 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 our plucky battlers go out there on the world stage and do better than they should. So that's part of it. Uh, and, and in that sort of Australian exceptionalism, if you like, is the idea that we do it clean and other countries are cheats. And so we love catching other countries cheating. That's great. That makes us feel fantastic. You know, we can get stuck into some Chinese swimmers and some Russian track athletes and whoever's been doping and whoever's been doing whatever it is they're doing because we don't do that. We don't need to do that. We're too good to need to do that. We just win on our own merits. And so, you know, in cricket, it's always been about Pakistanis match fixing and and you know South Africans match fixing and uh, whoever's doing dodgy things with the ball and all the rest of it but we never were willing to accept that our team would do those things we would never we would never have players who took money from bookies or got mm-hmm. banned for taking uh, drugs on the banned list and all of the other things that have actually happened with Australian players in in cricket and so yeah ball tampering's been going on in various ways for a very long time but no one has ever been completely red-handed caught doing it. Like, mm. That still hasn't happened. It's been known about, it's been whispered about, it's been talked about. But that Australian case was the first instance where someone is completely concretely on camera in high definition mm. shown uh, doing something with the ball. And the fact that it was with a bright yellow coloured piece of sandpaper just sort of made it more egregious. There was absolutely no way to hide from it. And so the embarrassment from that at being the country that was self-righteous and judged everyone else and then suddenly becoming the only country that had been completely caught in the open with no method to deny it whatsoever, people couldn't handle that. And and so that's why the reaction was so strong, I think, that Australian sport in a broader way had, had fallen off a pedestal that Australians had created for it. Let's turn to Adam Goods. Last week we heard the news that he declined being inducted into the AFL Hall of Fame. 
a two-times Brownlow medal winner and premiership player, is still so burnt by his final years in the game that he wants nothing to do with the sport. That's a pretty fairly damning indictment of the of the AFL. We've been talking about the heroes and villains narrative. In, in 2015, a proud Aboriginal man was clearly seen as a villain in parts of the Melbourne football community and media. Tracy, have lessons finally been learnt, do you think? Or, no. No? <laughs> what can the AFL do to make this one right? I mean, this is... Well, what they keep doing is associating their brand mm. with his name and somehow you know, capitalising on that. Um, I read and uh, a story that, you know, they phoned Adam Goods, he, he declined, he didn't want to have any part of being inducted into the Hall of Fame. And uh, I believe that he said to them, but he doesn't want this to be reported because mm-hmm. he doesn't want it to detract from those who will be, mm-hmm. which I think is... A, a fantastic position for him to have taken. And guess what? It's leaked. Mm. Now, who is in a position to leak that? I don't think Adam Goods leaked that story. And so yeah. this kind of thing just really gets on my nerves because, mm-hmm. no, they haven't learned and they are still capitalising and they're still trying, you know, hearing stories of, of people on air saying, well, it's time that he, Adam Goods, reached out and tried to build those bridges. It's like, no, he doesn't have to. And, and at the same token, he's not lying there in the fetal position. You know, Adam Goods has so moved on from mm. the AFL. Mm. He doesn't need the AFL. And this no. idea uh. that the AFL is everything and all things and dominant and that anybody could actually survive without them uh, is a step too far for a lot of people. But Adam's moved on. He's a successful businessman. Mm-hmm. He's an incredible father. He's, you know, he's he's living a life and he doesn't need the AFL. Um, and yeah, I just wish they would stop using his name, uh, you know, to promote their brand. Well, what can the media do to make this right? What do you think, Jeff? Because the AFL are clearly failing, or do you do you agree with Tracy? I do, in that the there's there's nothing in it for Adam Goods to Mm -hmm. be inducted into the Hall of Fame. Uh, He's the people who respect him already respect him. The people who undermine him and and are his detractors would continue to do Mm -hmm. that anyway, and would say that he was only put in the Hall of Fame to as a politically correct gesture or whatever it is. The as, as Tracy said, how did the story get out? There are only mm. two two parties who who knew about it, so um, I think we can pretty obviously draw conclusions on that. And the only benefit would go to the AFL of having him in the Hall of Fame because they would be able to say, "Oh, that's all resolved. We've drawn a line under that. Everything's done and and forgiven, and we've all moved on." Even though the AFL completely dogged it when. Adam Goods was being targeted. They didn't do anything about it. They didn't even admit that it was really happening. So there's nothing in it for him. Um, and and the I was was reading Dr. Chelsea Watego talking about this that what he has, the power that he has, is his um, unwillingness to his 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 ability to refuse to engage with this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what he's doing. And so you know, of course, there's a white Australian view that he's angry with him and resentful for the fact that he's refusing to engage with them. How much do you think that has to do with the media? In term, like in, in 2015, it was, mm. you know, this black man as a villain simply for playing the game, not being subservient. Did the media need to break out of its narratives and, and do way more then and, and, and does it now? 
I, I mean, I think largely the media coverage at the time was more sympathetic to Adam Goods than not. There was still the, there was the the problem that I mentioned with Naomi Osaka before, which is when it when a story boils over from just being reported by the journalists who work on the sport to being taken on by the commentariat, and that's where you get some really inflammatory stuff. And, and the Miranda Devines and. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because because the, the the sort of comment warriors who write for the papers will see an easy target to come in and write something uh, about race or or whatever it is that they think will get some clicks. So there was that going on, but largely the negative stuff around the good story was coming from the crowd, and it wasn't coming from all of the crowd, but it was coming from a big enough chunk of supporters at games. The, that's where it was coming from. I, I don't think it was media driven. It was driven by racism among Australian football supporters. And the main problem that came up in media reporting of it was a refusal to admit that this was actually the case from some quarters. Oh, I don't think football fans are racist. I don't think mm. uh, this would be the case. I think they're booing him for other reasons and, and all the rest of it, which was patently bullshit. But the line kept being repeated. So but largely I think the the media reporting from people who actually report on football was from my memory more sympathetic towards his position um, than than most of the perspectives from say the people in the stands who were uh, reserving their right to be able to abuse whoever they wanted mm. and sort of using trying to find ways to disguise it oh we're only booing him because we don't like the way he plays or whatever it was yeah, I just remember that piece of commentary when he did the war dance and it was like, ooh, mm. yeah, I don't think that was a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> and and yet, you know, I was watching that game at the time and I thought, oh, wow, how fantastic yeah. is that? Um, and so I guess that just goes to, you know, people, uh, the general public, some in the media, others, politicians feel threatened yeah. Yeah. by things that we don't understand. And instead of trying to understand them, we just put up that barrier and use all sorts of excuses to not have to engage or to not want to engage. And um, that's, you know, that is a very difficult thing to do. And I guess that comes back to, you know, it's education, isn't it? And it's it's wanting to try and understand uh, the other or trying to understand something that initially might feel unpalatable or, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's something we don't want to know about. Um, but in trying to understand that, it gives us a really different perspective. I remember hearing a story from some Pakistani cricketers and they were talking about the fact that, you know, that, I mean, Pakistani society is just, there's such a gulf between those that are ultra rich, mega rich and, and the mm. masses who are not. And they get picked in the Pakistan team or, or even, you know, the, the layers below that. And they get a phone call one night and it's, you will do this in the third over. And if you don't, we know where you live and your house will be burnt down. Mm. And, you know, what do you do? Yeah. Mm. What do you do when you're in that situation? You have no power. You have no authority. You, you have the only money you have is what you're getting for playing yeah. that game. What do you do? And yet, you know, it's very easy to say, well, they should stand up to them and just refuse. And <laughs> like, but, but when you consider that your family's house might be burnt down mm. um, and, and it could possibly, you know, in all likelihood happen, it, it puts a very different hue on the story. 
while we're on the subject of AFL, uh, well, turning back to AFL, 2021 hasn't been a good year at all for the Collingwood Football Club. Uh, near the bottom of the table, we've got Collingwood President Eddie Maguire, who, who stood down over his handling of the Can Do Better report. Are we seeing real change here or do you think it's just a shuffle of the deck? And what about what about Melbourne media in particular? Can, do you think they can do better as well? Jeff, you're a, a Melbourne journo. You're in that press corps. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, Collingwood, that whole story has been handled abysmally mm. from the start. Um, almost everything that Heritia Lumumba reported has been upheld by the report eventually. Um, and, and almost everything that he reported was undermined and traduced by Melbourne media, um, by football right. media, going to going to their sources, going to you know to get comment from whether it was Nathan Buckley the coach or whether it was various players or whatever it was, saying, "Well, there's no there's no problem at our football club, everything's all good," um, which it wasn't and isn't. And I'm sure that's also the case at other football clubs, and, and we haven't heard about it there either. So there's just been a complete lack of willingness to admit that there's a problem when there are when doing so would upset powerful people and you know for a long time Eddie Maguire was the person you didn't want to cross if you worked in football because he could make your life very difficult um, given all of the different power levers that he had and and so I mean, with what I was saying before about Adam Goods, I wasn't meaning to imply that there was no negative media coverage of it. Of course, there was, just that there was a fair bit of support in there as well. Um, but I, I think it's really telling that, like what Tracy mentioned about what happened on commentary at the time, it's really telling that there are no Aboriginal football commentators still to this day. There are so many Aboriginal stars of AFL football. You know, you're looking at 10% or so of, of the league registered players are Indigenous, and yet, with all of the players who make it into post, uh, you know, post career media, none of the none of the commentators doing games on TV are Indigenous. So there's no there's no voice really in Australian rules football, and that's still the case. Um, and that was the case when Haritia Lumumba was speaking out of, about racism at Collingwood. That the overwhelming voice was of the white players at the club saying, we don't think there's a problem, uh, but they're not the ones who are going to notice. <laughs> Funny that, isn't it? <laughs> um, it, it? You know, we shouldn't laugh. It's it's a really tragic situation. Yeah. I don't think we're anywhere close to resolving it. Um, I read a book a long time ago when I lived in Beijing and it was called uh, The Geography of Thought. Mm-hmm. And it was quite fascinating. They'd done a number of different academic studies, uh, you know, Westerners, Asian people and and even defining people like that can be problematic but but generally speaking we do tend to think in straight lines it's about winning and losing it's about good and bad it's about left and right it's black and white and we put everything into that kind of a filter um, Asian thinking is a lot more circular um, it continues things evolve and I think one of the problems um, we can take it right back to where we started the conversation somewhat with with swimming. Uh, you look at the the Collingwood Review. You look at all sorts of things that have happened. The Adam Good story. There's this there's this desire to to draw a line in the sand, as we say. And whatever came mm. before, okay, that's done. We've dealt with it. You know, it's like it's like history. It's the settlement of the country. Okay, yep, mm. we've dealt with that. Now let's all move on. You know, you shouldn't have any more reason to feel aggrieved or <laughs> whatever whatever the situation might be. Mm. And 
Life is not like that. No. The world is not like that. You know, it's circular. We have to keep evolving. We have to keep trying to, to, to make efforts to, to understand more or to go further. And so merely doing a report and saying, yeah, we got that wrong and we're terribly sorry. Now, fellas, let's get back to doing what we do mm. best and, and ignoring that situation without having those voices there. So without having Indigenous voices that are speaking up or involved in commentary or involved in coaching even, uh, the same situation in swimming. Where are the female coaches? You know, where are the females making the decisions on these things? Um, and, and so everything that we, we see and read is, is dominated overwhelmingly by white, white male voices. And, you know, as much as we'd like to think that white male voices know everything, um, they don't and they can't. And the only way we can get better is by having diversity. Mm-hmm. And diversity doesn't mean, you know, 50% white men and 50% white women. Diversity also means that we need to bring in people from all sorts of cultures and backgrounds mm-hmm. and understandings because that is what makes a complete picture. Well, finally, sport, despite all its faults and on how we report on it, and Tracy, touching on what you've just said, it, it is, it's a major driver for social change in Australia. The Paralympics, women's cricket, the AFLW, Indigenous round, uh, the Pride round, and, and you can, there's numerous examples. Where do the two of you see the next fight, the next big change that sport will, will help bring to reality? I think that something that has that's becoming a, a battle line or, or that has been for a while um, and probably shouldn't be, doesn't deserve to be, is the treatment of transgender people. And that it, this is less from a, a position of um, improving a, a, a social justice problem. It's more from a position of people who want to push against uh, rights and equality for mm-hmm. LGBTQ people are using that as their battle line. They're, they're saying, but what about trans people in sport? They shouldn't be allowed to play sport. They shouldn't be allowed to, they shouldn't be allowed to play in this category because they should belong to another category and all of the rest of it. Um, and so mm-hmm. I think that's a that's an area where a lot of work needs to be done to try to diffuse that sort of bad faith argument that there is some existential threat posed by trans athletes despite all of the medical information that says to the contrary and um, despite the very low numbers of athletes that we're dealing with anyway. So I think that's somewhere where um, attention is being drawn by people who don't have a a good faith reason for doing so, put it that way. So that's probably... um, one thing, but I, I suppose intersectionality shows us that there's it's never there's never one fight to be had. Uh, all of the fights need to be had at the same time in order to make progress in any direction. You've got to be making progress in other directions, and and progress that's entirely in one direction doesn't actually mean much um, if if it's not helping others in other directions as well. So it's um it, it's a it's a multi pronged approach, and it has to keep being that. Tracy? Yeah, look, and the transgender issue is probably going to come to the fore at the Tokyo Olympic Games. There's uh, a number of transgender athletes that might be selected in teams, um, a, a weightlifter from New Zealand, a BMX rider from the USA. And so those sorts of stories uh, are going to um, move into the spotlight a bit, as Jeff says. Um, but I think 
I don't know if it will be the next big battle, but it should be mm. the next big battle. And that is, uh, you know, blowing up the club and starting again. <laughs> <laughs> Tearing it all down. And, yeah. Okay. And, and, you know, and, I, and I, I mean that in a very, very positive way. Ooh, because but we don't like that here in Australia. We no, don't we like certainly to tear don't. It down. <laughs> we don't like to tear it down. We don't like change. We don't mm. like all of these perceived threats. Mm. I mean, remember, you know, at the beginning of the Olympic Games, um, women were going to be a threat and that's why mm. they weren't allowed. Uh, well, that's, that's changed. You know, we, we kind of blew that one up. Um, but I think... And part of the the blowing it up is is the system that exists that continues to protect what has always been there and the way it's always been done. And so superficially, there's discussions about changing things. But in reality and at the core and at the heart of sports organisations and how they function, what has really changed? And there's a lot of people that kind of come in and think, okay, I'm, I'm going to try and fight from the outside. That doesn't work. Okay, so I'll get on, on the inside. That doesn't work. I mean, basically what has to happen on all of these fronts is that bad behaviour, bad decision-making, not considering other perspectives and points of view and, and approaches all need to be considered and um, people need to call it out when it's not happening. And too many people go in for the good fight, retire hurt and disappear into the ether. And as a result, we end up repeating the same mistakes over and over again. So uh, yeah, that, that would be what I would think needs to happen. It's, it's just, it's time to call it out. Whatever that may be. And rally against the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over <laughs> yeah, and over again, right. expecting a different result. Exactly. We seem to find ourselves back in the same spot time and time again. Thank you both for being on Fourth Estate. Jeff Lemon. No problem. And Tracy Holmes. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and can be heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, of course, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is Fourth Estate AU. As always, a big thank you to my executive producer, Anthony Dockrell. My name's Tina Quinn. You can catch us next week on Fourth Estate.